Hello, hello, hello. Hello and welcome to this second podcast for From Altai to Yuher. Yay! I managed it. I managed to start recording, at least start recording on a second podcast after the inaugural one from a few weeks ago. I want to thank everyone who listened to the first podcast and who provided their feedback about it, comment suggestions, stuff like that. It really is encouraging to me when I know that people have listened and taken to heart or at least thought about the stuff that I discussed. Finding new topics to discuss and to really plan out for a second or third or fourth or eighth or tenth podcast is not the issue. Really, the issue is the momentum that you have to do of recording, of going back and re-recording, of formulating the topic and what you want to talk about, of formulating how you're going to progress with it, and then sitting down and actually going through the audio and then assembling everything for a podcast. It's very much like writing. If you followed my blog, you know that I quite enjoy writing and that I have a bit of a history of being fairly productive in producing pieces that are not the shortest and that come out in a fairly regular fashion, semi-regular, let's say. And so obviously I I like to elaborate and uh, to develop the ideas that I have and to put them into the written form. Today's podcast takes the topic of writing and publishing, really. I want to look at some of my own experience and the experience of others around me in terms of the highs and the lows of producing written texts and getting them published in whatever format that might be. Ever since I was a child, I've sort of developed this. My, my mother had this thing where she would get us to write pieces, to give them to her. She'd critique them, and then she'd uh, provide us with some sort of feedback to be able to improve our writing. And gradually, my sisters and I, we did improve our writing quite a bit that way. But it also meant that writing became really a part of how we expressed ourselves. Fast forward to today, and my situation is kind of unique compared to colleagues who write on similar topics and in similar fields, wherever they might work. I'm pretty lucky. I could probably get away without writing anything and still keep my job. I mean, not anything, anything. I couldn't be that friend of yours who replies to every text with a voice message, except the text is really a work email and still expect not to be fired. But what I mean here is really that I don't have, I don't face any expectations from my employers that I write papers, that I write journal articles, that I write books and blog posts and explanatory articles. And so without those expectations, I can really kind of look at my career path and think that if I don't write anything, I'm not necessarily going to face any sort of hurdles or obstacles in the normal progression of my career. So that, I mean, that that probably if you work in an, a, an academic institution, if you work in a university or a think tank, you're probably like, oh, God, I can't believe he gets to do this. Um, but obviously that comes with some pitfalls and um, that comes with professional or intellectual or even emotional pitfalls, really. Not having to write isn't just a question of being being stress free in my job. Believe me, it's not it's not stress free. What I mean more is that I don't necessarily have the encouragement to write and I don't have the encouragement to publish. You know, I, I look around and I see colleagues or I see classmates, I see other people who I know who have published books, who have published papers, who have their ideas circulated through these publications in academic forums. And I'm kind of sitting there and I think, oh, well, I, I wrote a bunch of blogs and people liked them, but then they were just blogs. And so people thought, oh, well, yeah, they're just blogs. You know, they're not necessarily academic pieces that are put on the same uh, level or the same pedestal as something like a journal article. I say that having actually published in peer-reviewed journals and having published in, I want to say commercial venues, but I didn't see any money from it. So um, the books that I published in were commercially uh, viable. I don't know necessarily that I would call my publishing or my writing commercial, uh, given, given that I didn't get a paycheck. 
Beyond that, most of the publications that I'm talking about were peer-reviewed publications. So I've gone through that process of submitting things and having them reviewed and then sent back to me and making changes, which I, I really think is an important part of academic publishing as well. I've got the joys of publishing, and I've got that, that high when you see your paper in print form or a lot of times just in electronic print form. Uh, but I've also seen some of the some of the times when it's not necessarily encouraging. I've also had that experience where either your piece is rejected or your piece is uh, sort of flounders, your piece waits forever to be published. I've got a, a bunch of pieces that I think for the last five years have been at various stages. Uh, so you know everything from from a paper about constructivism in Turkic uh, periodicals that I wrote on the assumption it would go to press at some point and never and and sort of just those prospects just disappeared. I've got uh, pieces that are almost at publication stage. So um, one article on on the Turkic collections I work with and another that's sort of a reader or a guide to Garshuni Arabic, both of which appear to be at the stage where they're ready for publication, but the actual production of those volumes seems to have been stalled for a good you know, one, two years, and then everything in between. So it's actually a really frustrating process that you come up with ideas, you invest all of this time and effort into, and because academic and scholarly publishing is generally assumed not to be not to be profitable, not to be commercially viable outside of the ivory tower, it can it can really go off the rails very easily. And and so I understand when people kind of get when when I get when others get really quite frustrated with that process. With all of this though, I think the one thing that kind of weighs down most on my mind that really makes me question my writing activities and questions my relationship with the idea of publishing and the idea of authorship is my PhD. And with this, I think probably because of the fact that I work at a library, I've I've really floundered on what I see with the PhD. I finished the full text of the PhD in 2017 and then um, went to Viva and passed without corrections in early 2018. I I mean, I, I'm not going to go into the full process of what it was like writing the PhD, but needless to say, there is a lot that happened through the process of writing the PhD and then especially the Viva, which gave me the idea that actually if I invested in sitting there with the the text of the PhD, of the thesis itself, and started to hash out some other aspects of it, I would easily be able to to take it and put it towards a manuscript for publication. And I haven't done that. Part of that is the fact that publishing your PhD or your thesis as um, a monograph and then having it be released commercially or semi-commercially is not necessarily something that is encouraged or needed in the industry that I'm in. It's not necessarily something that anyone around me really feels like, oh, you you need to be pushed to do this. Um, and so I, yeah, I, I kind of have lost the will to do it, if you will. I kind of look at the document and I think, oh God, it must be awful. And then I read it and I think, oh no, no, it's kind of good. But I also, I also kind of think like, oh, I don't want to sit there and do this. I don't want to sit there and prepare it for some sort of publication. Beyond that though, I really, yeah, I have to look at it and I have to say, well, if I don't need it for career advancement, if I'm not planning to go into academia and I'm not really thinking, oh, I I definitely need to have this thesis produced as a, a commercial book, as a book produced, you know, published rather by a University of Chicago Press. I mean, shooting for the stars there. Uh, but for any sort of academic press that's recognized as being a, a respectable one, um, 
then, yeah, the, the thesis is on Ethos. The thesis is easily available and uh, downloadable and can be cited and, and accessed by those who might need to use it for their own research. And at that point, I kind of ask, well, is that why I wrote it? Is that is that really why, um, you know, I engaged in a in a doctorate to have these ideas, to research these ideas, to expand on and explore these ideas, and then to communicate them to others and allow them to respond or to use those ideas in their own research. If that's the case, why do I need to publish it? I, I really I really struggle with this point, and I really struggle with the this idea of since I'm not living off of my writing, you know that do I do I need to push everything to a commercial venture? A lot of what I've talked about so far has been the professional aspect. But I think that there's also quite a lot of an emotional aspect to publishing and to writing in general that we don't necessarily take into consideration when we're asking, you know, why why isn't this person publishing or why isn't this person really going further with their material? I've spoken to a, a number of different peers and colleagues and friends um, about publishing, and I have a, a lot of people in my vicinity or in my in my social groups who do publish and who do write. And a lot of them are women. Uh, some of them are women of color. So I think in discussing this topic, I've also sort of come to understand just how gendered and classist and racist publishing can be. And I know that those are um, those are often perceived as being quite strong words. I think on the one hand, given that we're talking about academic publishing and professional publishing, um, and on the other hand, that the anonymous aspect of some publishing or some anonymous aspects of publishing in the scholarly realm uh, can bring out the worst in people, I don't think that they're necessarily um, bad terms to use. And my sister is a an academic, and she's been working in academia for oh, I don't know, like 15 years or something, probably 20 years even. And so I've I've gotten a lot. Um, of material, a lot of her experience, a lot of different interactions that she's had. And that's also really helped me in some way uh, to gauge my own experience. Obviously, a bit different being a, you know, a, a cis man. I've heard from quite a few different uh, friends who are authors, especially who are, who are women or who have, have color, who who kind of face quite bad feedback. And bad, not necessarily in the sense that it's disappointing. I mean, it's probably disappointing for them, but bad in the sense that it is hurtful. And it's sometimes purposefully hurtful towards them and towards their view of their own writing, towards their view of their uh, career prospects and their career progression. I've, I've also seen some of it too. And it's pretty clear to me from some of the comments and reviews that I've gotten, which probably are far fewer than than these individuals have received, that there's an incredible tendency in academic publishing towards gatekeeping, towards um, the elimination of competition, too. I don't understand it. I generally, I try, when I'm interacting with people, I try to understand that I have to be kind and gentle with others. And it really doesn't, I, I don't know, it just, it sometimes baffles me that this is the way that people think you have to treat someone whose work you're reading and it can be so demoralizing. I've also worked as an editor, and I've worked back and forth with authors, um, and and I've reviewed quite a few different pieces. And so I do know that there are there are scenarios in which you might, as an editor or as a reviewer, you might struggle to provide information back to an author because, I mean, there's a point where you might, you know, you might be talking about something that the person's writing is not very clear, but then also. I mean, there are times when you read something and you think like, oh, God, no, someone needs to someone needs to take you aside and say, 
like I don't think you can publish this. I think you've gone, you've overstepped the bounds in dealing with those authors. I realize, you know, that when it's anonymous, you you kind of are forced to deal with these sorts of things, and that sometimes editors aren't necessarily in the best place to say, oh, I'm not even going to take a paper to the stage of getting a reviewer to read this and possibly traumatizing a re- reviewer who needs to who needs to deal with some of these sentiments. Um, but I think also sometimes there are editors who seek out those those pieces and uh, kind of assume either the editor, either the the reviewer rather, has to be okay with it, or there's a problem with the reviewer. So I understand that the system, in a way, is devised to be objective and fair, but actually is really functioning as a way to to weed out certain things too, uh, and not necessarily in a good way. I know it probably seems like, oh God, I'm trashing everything and I'm saying everything's awful and I'm such a, you know, a a negative Nelly with everything here. But really, I mean, I want to stress that I've had, I've spoken to people who have had bad experiences. Uh, I've had bad experiences myself, but I really feel like sometimes you luck out on a reviewer, you luck out on an editor and those are golden moments. Sometimes you kind of make them happen because you're asked by a journal to provide the name of a potential reviewer or potential editor. And then you you kind of know, you know, like if you get someone who's going to be really harsh and really mean with you, it's sort of your own fault. But um, but other times, you know, you 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 don't have a say and you end up getting someone who really, really helps you in your research. In this respect, when I was still sort of in the first or second year of my PhD and submitted a paper. Dr. Peter A. Jackson, who's from Australian National University, was someone who really went the extra mile to help me develop as a writer. I think he's an incredibly generous and um, and kind teacher, really, who's someone who has, who without necessarily knowing who I was, because I, I think my paper was anonymized, took an extra step to be able to help me understand what the issues were with my paper, to help me understand what the issues were with my writing, and to develop those in a way that I was able to create a piece that he really thought was of a quality that was worthy of publishing, but that also really assisted me later on in writing my doctorate and in and continuing to write a number of different pieces. I, I think Another aspect too is that obviously we, you know, I'm talking here a lot about uh, academic publishing, and uh, and as much as we can think that this small pond of academic publishing is the big thing, obviously there's this insanely big, uh, you know, this ocean next to us, which is uh, non-academic publishing and particularly fiction publishing. I had a piece that was published in a small journal of LGBT speculative fiction. And the majority of the editorial staff were either black or uh, of color, were queer people, and they were incredibly supportive. They were really fun. There wasn't any sort of emphasis on competition. There wasn't any sort of com- emphasis on, you know, on, oh, well, I'm an author, but I also act as an editor. And since you're an author, I'm going to try to trash your stuff, or I'm going to say that you're, you know, you are a dirty Marxist, or you're as stupid in the way that you interpret Soviet sources. Or, uh, I mean, I, I didn't use any Soviet sources in the uh, in the fiction piece that I wrote, or one that I have actually received, um, that your English is awful, and that you shouldn't be writing in English, and you really need a native speaker to uh, review your pieces, which I had on a, a an actual piece, which I think is hilarious because I am in fact a native speaker of English, and yet I was having someone else who felt uh, they couldn't go on a, a huge power trip um, in order to tell me, oh well, well you speak hor- you write a horrible English, and none of that, thankfully, when it comes to fiction. And so I I think I've seen, yeah, you know, that there are some awful people who who will work with journals and who will edit journals and who will review for journals. 
but there are those who are good. And then outside of that, there's just this world of a really supportive, really helpful, really nice people who work in fiction publishing as well. And um, and so it makes me kind of think this idea of like uh, focusing on the bad aspects and saying I don't want to publish. That's probably a bit misguided. Something that really that really helped break the dichotomy in my mind between sort of journal writing, so writing just for yourself and only for you to read, and writing for a, a publication that is a peer reviewed, that is a commercial publication, was the idea of blogging. I obviously was aware of it, roughly speaking, from when it started, but really had never engaged in it seriously or really thought about it as a serious mode of expression until about 2014 when I was asked to provide blogs for both the Oxford University Press and for Ginkgo Press. And I realized suddenly how it was it's actually quite a fun thing. It really kind of opened my eyes to the idea that there was a different way of writing and a different way of communicating. And... Um, that just sort of continued on as I then went to go and work at the British Library. So starting from, I, I started at the the library in 2016, but really started blogging in 2017. And that experience of being able to work with the blog editors and put up pieces that were informed really by what I was seeing at the library, by what I was working with, that helped me to understand a bit more about the benefits of blogging. It's a bit restrictive at the library, and it's um, it's obviously restrictive because it's meant to all relate back to the library. And so at the library's blogs, you've got to write about the collections. You um, have to kind of think about the library's reputation, think about the library's actions and activities. And beyond that, there's also a strict sort of control of the audience. And that control of the audience is maintained by the fact that you are one of many different blog writers uh, and so given that everyone is sort of directed to talk about the collections, there's this audience that grows around that. If you don't actually talk about the books and the manuscripts and the magazines at the library, everyone's going to be like, I don't understand why this is a blog here. So there's some sort of control over content. But within that, you can kind of choose what you want to write about. And that's in some way, that's refreshing. That desire for a free hand is why I started my blog from Altai to Yuher. The ability to decide what I would write, when I would write it, and for whom I would write it was a big draw to creating a platform where I would control all of those aspects. It is something that I've looked at and kind of thought, oh, this really does scratch an itch. And I, I wonder why I haven't found it necessarily. I haven't found this remedy in some way in other forms of writing and in other forms of publishing. I'm really lucky actually that I don't have to live from writing and even if I you know even if I would like to even if I'd like to have this idea that my job is getting up in the morning and and kind of thinking about things to write and then writing them out and then editing them and then you know repeating the process over and over again perhaps I lack that drive and to really push what I'm writing to a commercial outlet every single time I write something Uh, I'm lucky that my career progression doesn't necessarily depend on me doing that and the reason why I say I'm lucky is because then there isn't that pressure of me necessarily thinking I've got a right to sell and can just kind of focus on the idea I've got a right to express. I do sometimes question, you know, is there is there a part of this that I'm cheating myself or I'm kidding myself and that I should push myself, you know, to publish the thesis as a book, that I should really look at getting stuff into commercial uh, publications, into academic publications on a more routine basis, that I should 
look at those blockages in terms of, you know, having to wait for stuff to come out as just more time to work on something else. I, I don't know. Um, maybe that's the theme of my podcast. I don't know. And I, I guess that's, yeah, like I said, that's sort of what life is made up of. Things that tension between different things that we can't necessarily solve on our own and things that change from one time to another. One week, I kind of think, oh, I want to spend every moment writing. Another week, I don't really have the energy. So maybe it's good to to have this as a question constantly hanging over me without necessarily having to feel like I've got to resolve it right away. Okay, so as promised in my first podcast, the only other podcast really that's out there, I'm going to discuss just briefly a piece that I have read in the last few weeks that I think is of interest, uh, that I hope would be of interest to others who listen to this podcast. The piece is called Is Histori Yakutskava Alphavita by Zakharova. Um, so from the history of the Yakut alphabet, and if you haven't already guessed, yes, this piece is in Russian. It uh, was published in 2014 in the Sivira and I do not believe that it has been translated into English. So, sorry, either you're going to have to learn Russian or you're going to have to wait for someone perhaps inspired by this uh, this brief description of it who will translate it into English. I found it to be a fascinating overview of the Yakut or Sacha alphabet. So Yakut is often the, the term used in English. In the language itself, it's Sacha that is the ethnonym. It's a bit of a confusing piece because she says the Sacha alphabet, but really she's talking only about the Cyrillic one. So she's not talking about the Latin script interlude from about 1917 to 1938 or the late 30s. Um, And the reason for this is because she's really looking at the ways in which nomenclature, the ways in which we talk about the the actual object of this alphabet, uh, how we describe it and where it came from, or rather how individuals have described it and where it came from, reflects radical shifts in ideology and political thinking perspectives in terms of self-determination in in cultural spheres and Russification. It's an excellent paper, I think, because it really makes us think of how, not just of Sacha, but also of all of the other different scripts where you have a similar history. So here from the 18-teens, you've got a few works that are missionary tracts that are translated into Sacha, and Zakharova really begins to question whether we can say that there's an alphabet there or it's just that they've been translated and transliterated into Russian. Uh, And then going into the 1850s when something is formally created by uh, Butting, and then going into the Soviet times when there are various reforms, and how gradually these steps are described with the relationship to the various actors because of dominant understandings about Sakha-Russian relations within the Soviet Union. So whether we emphasize the missionaries as a way to emphasize the input of Russians within Sakha cultural determination, self-determination and development, whether we talk about the idea of excluding everything that's created by missionaries from this history and only looking at the things that are developed for the Sakha or by the Sakha themselves as, uh, as being part of the Sakha alphabet. And then gradually how those narratives are circulated, whether just in Russian or in Russian and Sakha together, whether they become part of a broader understanding of Sakha cultural development, and whether we're really asked to understand things like missionary tracks as part of cultural development or as cultural oppression, that all of those track out different stages in Soviet history, in in Soviet science and social sciences, as well as Soviet politics. So I think it's an incredible piece that 
doesn't actually set out that this is its goal, but in just really tracking that history gives you an idea to a certain extent of how something as simple as the alphabet can really encode so many different political and ideological values um, throughout the ages. And so we've come to the end of podcast number two. Yes, we finally got two full podcasts up. So hopefully uh, this bodes well for the continuation of the series. I want to thank you for listening to this podcast. And I really hope you enjoyed it, that you um, had a few different ideas, that it sparked a few different thoughts about writing and about authorship and about uh, your own relationship to publishing. I look forward to your questions, your comments, your concerns, your feedback about this episode, about the last episode, about the series in general, whatever you want to say. And if you haven't done so already, please do subscribe to fromaltaitohuger.home.blog so you don't miss any more of the episodes as they come up. Happy curating and bye for now.